good to see everyone. Appreciate you all being here. I've been mentioned Wednesday night. I was uh, going to talk about Jesus. In this light, it didn't necessarily mean what David wrote about Jesus, but uh, let's look at uh, John chapter 3 and verses 13 through 18. No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting, eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So we're really going to look at John chapter 3, verse 16 today. And back in the day when I used to watch Monday night football, a team would go to kick a field goal or an extra point, and there's this guy in the end zone who had multicolored hair. I don't know if that was a wig or his real hair, but he would hold up a sign and all this. Uh, uh, John 3.16 was on it. This is not the guy. I tried to get a picture of him, but Internet just wouldn't let me bring it over. It just wouldn't let me do it. So anyway... This uh, a guy, how he did it, all these Monday night football games and sometimes a college game, he was there. And he had that sign up everywhere. It was a, it was an amazing thing, really. So I, I do want us to, uh, to look at John 3.16. And everybody knows this verse. All of us in here could quote it. I have no doubts in my mind. And most everybody in this country can quote this verse, even though they may not believe it, but they can quote it because it is so well known. It's been called the golden text of the Bible. And the reason being is it puts forward in, in the most succinct way, the, the most simple language, the central truth of the Bible. If you listen enough, TV preachers will quote this verse all the time, and they'll tell you how faith only saves you. They'll do that. Uh, but let's look at this verse. Let's break it down, and let's look at it. It can be broken down into three pretty good distinct phrases. For God so loved the world. Number second one, that he gave his only begotten son. And the third, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So I want us to just talk about those three phrases. For God so loved the world. The Jew was always ready to think that, the God, that God loved Israel, that God loved his Jewish people. They're, they're his chosen people. And they, would, well, they, they were proud of that fact, and I literally mean proud. Um, but it would be hard to find a writer who was a Jew, aside from the Old Test New Testament writers, be hard to find a Jew who would write that would consider that God loved the world. Uh, it just it just wouldn't happen. Americans today, we seem to think that 
Israel has most favored status because of what the Old Testament says about them, that they're God's chosen people, and people still think that they're God's chosen people today. But let's look at that. The New English translation, I don't often read it, but they state, for God so loved the world, they state it in this way, for this is the way God loved the world. The Lexham English Bible would say something very similar, for in this way God loved the world. And it, it always denotes the manner of his love, not how much he loved us. And we know how much he loved us, but these verses this uh, tell us the manner in which he loves us. God doesn't love only the rich or only the poor or only the spiritual elite or only a national group. He loves the world. He loves men. There are preachers who would tell you that um, God loves men now because Jesus died for us. But that didn't happen before. He didn't love men before. That's not what he says. The love that he has for us is that a form of the the agape love. To put it simply, it's a loving concern for us. So that's what he has in mind, his concern for us, because the sins that we've done separate us from him. And they have uh, an estrangement that we have from him. So Jesus came to earth and made salvation possible because God loved us. That's what happened. For God so loved. The so is kind of an important word in this phrase. It really is. Uh, so there's a denominational creed that would tell us that Jesus died that God might love us. I, I mentioned that a minute ago. But this word so here is a word that indicates in what way God loves us. And that word is I don't know how you pronounce it. You do what you wish, you wish with it. But it always refers to something that previously happened, not something that's to be explained. So this soul is looking back to what was before. So to fully understand it the way God loved the world, then we should look at those preceding verses. So let's look at verses 14 and 15. I have them on the screen here. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Just as you remember the story about Israel in the wilderness and their obstinance, and they just they didn't want to do what the Lord said to do, nor what Moses said to do, basically. And God was going to destroy them, but if they looked at, at this serpent up on a pole, they would be spared um, so in this way in, in that sense of being lifted up that's what was going to happen to Jesus so he was going to be lifted up he was going to be crucified because of us because of the way we are because of the sins we do and so he was going to be lifted up and he's go so that is the so He's going to be, this is how, this is the manner in which he loves us, that he gave his son to be lifted up. 
and he gave his only begotten son. It's used in two senses, this gave. The first sense is, a first sense, is that God gave his son by sending him into the world. Yeah, he gave his son up. The second sense is he gave him up on the cross. He gave Jesus, his only begotten son, on the cross. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. That he was, um, gave himself, Jesus did. Uh, but here, maybe express the more of the idea in Galatians 1, 4, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father. So Jesus was given up by God that he might deliver us from this present evil age. And he would redeem us from every lawless deed. He's going to purify us for himself as his own special people. No sacrifice was too great to bring salvation. There's nothing more important than God giving his son. The cross is not said to show the love of the son, but the love of the father in John 3.16. So atonement proceeds, if you will, from a heart of God that loves us. That's why he's given us Jesus as a sacrifice to make atonement for our sins. So the best that God had to give, he gave. The best he had to give, he willingly gave it, I might add. And so the love of God is shown as having no limits that whatever was necessary for us, that's what he did. And it was necessary that he give his only begotten son. He gave what was most dear to him. Think about that. The most important, the most, de- the most dear relationship to him, he was willing to give him, sacrifice him, kill him, so that he would, so we could live. So he gave his only begotten son. We'll look at that only begotten part for just a minute. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Now wait a minute. Abraham offered his only begotten son. Abraham had a son named Ishmael, if you, if you remember. And he had other sons after Sarah died from the woman named Keturah. Sons born to him by her. So how was Isaac his only begotten son? Isaac was not Abraham's only son. So we can come to that conclusion. But Isaac was Abraham's only begotten son. In what sense? 
He was a son born as a result of certain promises made by God to Abraham. God didn't give those promises to Ishmael, Abraham and Ishmael. He gave them to Abraham and Isaac. So Isaac was Abraham's one-of-a-kind son, in a sense, in that sense. He's the, he's the one through the promises that, that we were given. So the Greek word then for only begotten seems to mean one of a kind or unique and is reserved in the writings for John to be Jesus. Jesus is the one who's the only begotten in all of John's writings, even first Peter and second Peter, first John and second John, third John. It's the only begotten he's talking about Jesus. All Christians are called sons of God. We're all sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. But Jesus is God's son in a unique way. He's his one-of-a-kind son that has a special relationship to him far and above what the Christians do. So he's the only begotten. There's a verse in the New Testament, it's in John, and it's verse 5, in, uh, chapter 5 and verse 18, which might explain the relationship between God and Jesus even more. And the thing about, let me explain this verse a little bit before we get to it. Well, now let's just, we'll put it up here. Therefore, the, John 5, 18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. John writes about the religious leaders, the Jews who were against Jesus the whole time. And they understood something from what Jesus was teaching that Jesus' own disciples didn't get. And they never got it until the resurrection. That he can do all these things. All, he can heal all these people. He can do all of these miracles. He can command nature to obey him, and it does. And he's God's son, and he is. And the Jews said, whoa, he's making himself equal with God. And it's kind of interesting to me that the apostles never really got that. They might give the right answer, but they didn't know the information. The Jews got it. He made himself equal with God. It's a pretty important statement. He's the only begotten son, and they are one. The Greek for only begotten, used of Christ, in which he is the son of God and has no brethren. He didn't have any brothers. Now, Mary and Joseph had children. They had sons and daughters. But Jesus was from the Father in heaven. In that sense, he's entirely different. He has no brothers. While Jesus was born on earth, his existence did, did not begin then. He didn't just come on the scene as a little child born in Bethlehem. 
and raised by by uh, Mary and Joseph. It just didn't happen just then. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. Not a God. The Word was God. And in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 1, the Word was God. In verse 14, and the Word became flesh. God became flesh. That's what he just said. He didn't say it that way, but that's what he meant. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. He's just like us. There's no difference. He got tired, he got sleepy, he got worn out, exhausted, he got hungry, he needed rest, he needed sleep, he needed to pray to his father, we need to pray to all those things we need to do. That's the son. He's no different from us in that sense. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophet, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The prophets, they did their job. When, when Jesus is being transfigured on the mountain, and Peter, James, and John are there, Elijah and Moses are there, he spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. He also spoke by the law given by Moses. He said, in these last days, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. That little tidbit of information we just don't think about often, that Jesus made the worlds. And he upholds all things by the word of God's power the Father's power, His power. And when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, showing then that Jesus didn't arrive on the scene at birth to Mary and Joseph. He was here. He's the express image of God, through whom also He made the worlds. He's the one who made it for us. So, shockingly then, if you really think about it, it's a shock. God put the well-being of the world above that of his only begotten son. That we were important to him. That our condition was important to the Lord. Because of a separation that we have from him because of our sins. 
And so he would not withheld, withhold the only sacrifice that was acceptable to save us. He would not withhold his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We find two results in this phrase here. We find eternal life. That's the good result. And eternal life is, you know, you, you, you know who God is. You know God. And you're in a relationship with him here. We, 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 have, we, we have something with God here. And we experience all the blessings which flow from the relationship that we do have with God. There are blessings to be had. Eternal life being one of them. But they are spiritual and earthly blessings. You are blessings for us. Each other, we are blessings for each other. So that's one result. And the other, other result is to perish, is to miss out on all these blessings because the wrath of God remains on us. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If we don't believe on him, then we perish. We're going to talk about that belief here in just a moment. In John chapter one, 3, John chapter 3 and verse 36, it says, He who believes in the Son has an everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him, on him. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. That's what verse 36 says. Verse 16 says that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There's two, two options to be. One's good, one's bad. So there's a separation because of sin, an estrangement, if you will. If a husband and a wife have decided to separate, they're estranged from each other. If when sin, we have sin in our life, that puts that separation between us and God. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2, you ought to read it sometime. I know you probably know it, but I won't read it. But there's a separation, and it's because of sin, between us and God. Now, God didn't do anything wrong, so he's not going to have to change. I did something wrong, I've got to change. We've done something wrong. We've got to change. All men sin and fall short of the glory of God. But the good thing is, is God doesn't want that to be, there to be a separation. What he wants is reconciliation. Bringing the two parties back together. He's here. We have moved away from him with sin. He wants to bring us back, and that's what reconciliation does. That's an abolishment of the estrangement. We come back to it. He doesn't move. He doesn't change his plan. He said, okay, well, maybe I was too harsh. Maybe, no. We have to change. And that's what reconciliation does. It abolishes the estrangement. It takes away that separation. 
And there is an adjustment on God when that reconciliation comes. There's an adjustment on God's part from wrath to favor. He doesn't look at us the same once the sin is gone. The sin, the wrath. I was at the Pines the other night, and there was a guy that read a verse. And he, and, and instead of wrath, he said rage. And think of God in a rage. That's what it's going to be with sin. We're going to feel the effects of it if we've not changed. But that's not what he wants. In Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. God showed us how much he loved us. Christ died for us. That's what John 3.16 tells us. We're justified by his blood. We're saved from the wrath through Jesus. That's what he's always wanted. From the start. When we decided we didn't want to do right. He'd already made plans for that. The giving of God's only begotten son extends beyond just his birth, his incarnation. God gave his son in the sense of giving him up to death as an offering for sin for everybody, for the whole world, for all the world, for the world, ever how you'd like to phrase it. But let's talk about this belief thing for just a second, or more than a second. Let's look at it. In John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, we did not read this, but it says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Verses 19 and 20 is us. That's us. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil and the darkness conceals it, if you will. Not to God, but from each other. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But here's the kicker. But he... Who does the truth, he who does what God wants to do. The truth, uh, but he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. This believing, you obey. You obey God. Just as this, this serpent was in the wilderness and he's, he's up there. And Moses told him, said, you've got to look at that serpent if you want to live. And so their faith caused them to look up when they wanted to live. And they, did they believe? Yeah. But they still had to look up at that serpent. So he who does the truth, that's what believing is. Causes, it causes us to do something. 
So while God's love is universal, it's for everybody, it guarantees eternal life not for the whole world indiscriminately. Not, he's just not going to save everybody just because we're alive and just because he loves us. He's not going to save us, though, if we're obstinate toward him. But it's for everyone who believes. God's love is universal, but he'll save us. He'll save those who believe. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, God is talking, or the Hebrew writer is talking about the, the Israel in the wilderness and their stubbornness. And to, Hebrews 3, 18 and 19, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? See, so we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. They did not obey, and that's of unbelief. So what does unbelief cause? Or what does belief cause, excuse me, what does belief cause? Doing what God approves of. Obeying God is another way to say it. That's what it means. Unbelief, they did not obey. They did not obey, and that's unbelief and the result of that is perishing. So we have a choice to make. And that choice is, will I obey God or will I not? Will I let the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus be for nothing? Or will I put my will aside? Put my life aside for the Lord? Will I confess his name? Will I change my life? Repentance is probably the hardest thing to do. To, to put away your life, to change it so that God approves of it and the world won't approve of it, basically, is what happens. The world won't approve of the life of a Christian. It just doesn't. And that's the hardest thing to do, that you, to get the approval. I need to get Jerry's approval. Well, God says, I really don't need Jerry's approval. I need God's approval. That's what we have to do. That those who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. In a commentary I have written by Daniel King, one of the truth commentaries, the, the Gospel of John, he had a statement in there. He said, if man would die in sin, John thus defines it as his own choice to die. God has freely provided the means of deliverance. Jesus' work was not condemnation, but salvation. So if, if we don't go to heaven, we choose not to. It's our decision. We did it. Appreciate your listening. Open your song books to number 436. If you need to be baptized to have your sins washed away or something's wrong in your life, you need the prayers of saints, why don't you come while we stand and while we sing?